Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. That's, yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I want to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I'd like to stay alive for six days. I'd say it to your face, I'll say it to you now. I'm down Swanfield and we'll see them, won't we? What are you doing down here, you shawnee man? You are very welcome to today's edition of the Irish Times Second Captains uh, podcast. And the reason that you hear my voice is that Owen McDevitt is on holidays again. Again. Uh, he's on holidays again. No, it's, in, to be fair to Owen, uh, his previous uh, holiday, only, what was it, two weeks ago? Was it really a holiday? That was, uh, that was a, a stag. That was, um, mm. uh, you know, a long, an, an old friend of his, a long-standing friend. Uh, he required Owen services as a best man. He had no option but to go. This is a proper. And he he, he he took the the role with the solemnity and business like uh, fervor that you would expect from Mr. McDevitt, and it all passed off. I heard without that, incident. that it all it all was uh, went off ship shape. Uh, pretty much the whole whole thing. Some people lost their laminated itineraries, uh, 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 but other than that, it was uh, it was fine. So Owen is is off at the um, seat of global power now, uh, Washington. Big fan of House of Cards. Yep. So he's uh, he's helpfully pilgrimage to yeah. He's helpfully uh, put the laminated itinerary onto a lanyard for himself and his girlfriend. So just just in case there would be any uh, any incidents whatsoever. That's yeah. good. We were suggesting uh, things he could do. He, I think he's he's then going to go to New York. And you know, have you ever had that uh, experience of you're going on holiday somewhere? And your friend says, "Oh, you're going to X. Well, you should check out Y." And mm. you're kind of like thinking, "Yeah, you know." To be honest, why don't you just show me that? Because this is kind of awkward for both of us. Uh, but you kind of feign. <laughs> I've can, never thought that. I have to say, you haven't. I don't. I don't even suggest something for me to do. I would be like, "Well, if I have time, I, you know, I, that sounds nice." Yeah. Someone actually, someone actually did. Uh, when I went to, I went uh, to New York. Over Christmas, right? Or for my honeymoon, right? Yeah. So someone suggested to me that I go to a house that staged uh, Macbeth, right? Mm. So it was like a three-hour production of Macbeth. I think it was Macbeth. But it was in all of the rooms of the house, right? Now, how am I supposed to say to this person that, that you know, maybe that would be... Hang on, where was, where was this? It was in New York. Yeah, I know the, I know the thing you're talking about. This, yeah. is, this is unbelievable because... 
this is exactly what we had. Hang on, it was probably me who recommended. No, it wasn't. That. No, it wasn't. It wasn't, Ken. I know the woman in question, so it wasn't. Okay. You. Well, well, Owen was sitting there. You, you, what, what did you say to her? Well, I said, oh, um, um, yeah, well, we could check that out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, it's kind of tight. We have like six days, you know, so it could be kind of tight. We might not make it. You know? Oh, so you did say something. Else. Well, you pretty much had the exact same reaction as Owen had. Um, myself and Mark were there in the office and. And Mark's like, oh, you know, what's that thing called? Now they have it on up, you know, it's it's like this play, it's maybe really good, you know, people, and I was kind of listening, and, oh, is that Sleep No More? Oh, Sleep No More, oh, yeah, yeah. I was like, yeah, 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 I, I, I wouldn't see that, yeah, it's, it's pretty good, you know. Uh, yeah, you should go, you should go and check it out. And Owen, Owen was kind of like, yeah, well, it's just that with the, um, you know, Got the you know Yankees game, and, you know, <laughs> uh, hoping to get into the sports part to see the U.S. ladies. Yeah, just wary. I'm just a little wary of of booking up too much stuff, <laughs> too much stuff in advance. So, uh, so he 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 didn't even pretend to be he, interested he in the dead batted the the sweet no more offer. But it's right. not it's not exactly Macbeth. It's kind of more. Uh, uh, themes, kind of ideas inspired by Macbeth. I mean, you've got these actors sort of running around like this large, uh, you know, building, which is kind of done up to be a mm. little bit spooky. Yeah. And uh, you don't really know what's going on. And it's kind of an immersive experience. You've got actors running around. You've got like people running around after them. Everyone's wearing this weird mask as well. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. So yeah. it's a bit of an eyes wide shut sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I was... You know, I mean, it's my honeymoon. Am I actually going to stand around for three hours with complete strangers well, wearing you're not a mask? Sa- you're, you're, it's, you're, you're discovering what's going on. I mean, in, in a pretty, yeah, I mean, okay. It's I, not, it's, you know, you see where I'm coming from here. But I mean, my reaction was, it, that sounds that sounds great. But you see, Whereas Owen's reaction you see was, also how the, how the audience behaves. Part of it is almost watching how the audience behaves because they're all wearing these masks. So they've kind of, they're, they've lost their identity and suddenly the audience is behaving in weird ways. Yeah. Like running around after a naked man. Like there's a naked man who steps out of a bath full of blood and then he kind of runs around naked and the audience is all running around after him. <laughs> it's kind Tell of... me, do, do they sell pints at this thing? Or... <laughs> <laughs> they do, actually. They have a... Kind of, uh, kind of sounds like the sort of thing I'd need to have three pints on board. They have a kind of a, 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 a Weimar-style uh, cocktail bar, you okay. know, where you right, go, yeah. we go down, there's all these... Um, Staff in kind of you know they could be they're working in some sleazy Berlin cabaret or whatever uh, that sort of feel to it and you drink these uh, overpriced uh, drinks. Look, we we could Listen, talk I'd about this. I'd love to go, but uh, uh, just on that Tuesday, I am going to uh, Filthy McNasty's to watch a sporting event. So. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> that's what I should have said. That's what I should so have said. If Owen, hey. if Owen is listening to this, he uh, w- is probably getting annoyed at the moment and wants us to start reporting on sport. So. I think you were watching it as, as well, uh, Kieran, as myself. Last the second night. semi-final. Yeah. I watched the first semi-final of the uh, World Cup in Canada between the United States and Germany. And uh, the United States eventually crushed the Germans 2-0. Uh, Germany missed a penalty. Uh, and how often does that happen? Mm. I think was said in commentary. The trope that was uh, trotted out. Then America got a penalty which they scored, and then they scored a second goal, um, uh, turning the screw on the Germans late on. The Germans were, were sort of interesting. They were very similar to their, tactically, uh, the way they played, very, very similar to the men's team, trying to do the same type of, trying to play the same type of game. Very, um, you know, uh, little triangular passes and lots of vertical running, but couldn't quite carry it off. I mean, I think 
uh, the Americans have, a, have a, had a much more kind of an old school, traditional, physical game with a cut with, a, with like a fast one and a big one up front. Mm. And uh, actually, ultimately, looked much stronger. I mean, I don't mean just physically stronger. They looked much the better team as it went on. Germany just couldn't quite. I mean, the, that type of game, the type of game that the German national team plays, both men and women, needs incredible degree of uh, fitness, incredible physical intensity to keep it going all the way. And it was clear that the German team, at least by the semi-final stage of the World Cup, couldn't quite hack it and ended up getting uh, uh, getting pummeled by the Americans. But the England game is one I'm going to remember for a long time. Mm. It was. It, to be honest, I watched the coverage basically from when it started. Mm. I think around quarter past 11 or something it started. Mm. A lot of talk of... Uh, Italian ninety, yeah, German, so much of it. England, all of that. So much talk about about uh, history, football history. I was kind of, I, I mean, it was Jonathan Pierce, and he's always, uh, you know, he was on his very best behaviour. Jonathan Pierce, I should say, he uh, and he always, he does have a tendency to to go on a little bit, you know, with those filling those minutes before the kickoff with uh, by really going through the reciting all the mm. key, you know, moments. But, you know, all the, I mean, all of these history. I mean, he even had Winston Churchill's quote about history. History will be kind to me, for I intend to write it. Which I'm not sure if Churchill said in quite that tone of voice. Yeah. I think that he was, I think it was actually a joke that he was making. It wasn't necessarily, and now I will go upstairs to my study and commence the writing of history. Which will, <laughs> you know what I mean? He, he was kind of saying, now, so if you'll excuse lionesses, me. is yeah. your time to write history. Yeah. And... And you could kind of feel, I mean, it was, you know, as you're, as you're watching, it was quite a, particularly the second half of the game, you are really getting drawn into this match, you know? The second half was much better than the first. So the first half was pretty pedestrian. The two penalties were nearly the only thing of note that happened in the game. Yeah. Uh, but the second half, there were actually a load of chances. And England had much better of the third quarter. Japan came into it towards the end. And it was actually... Uh, it was pretty entertaining stuff after the after the break. I thought. Yeah, I mean, there, there was a few differences. I mean, one of the things is Jonathan Pierce. Uh, obviously, all everybody sung the national anthem. I saw that. I was paying close attention to that one. Everybody. Um, Jonathan Pierce was talking about the access that he that he was enjoying, as England coach Mark Sampson said to me just the other day. Which there was a, a lot of talk about the, the the coffees he was enjoying with the backroom team and the team itself. The, they're so keen to welcome us here to to let us be part of this World Cup experience, which you know he doesn't need to say is no longer the case. Uh, is no longer the case uh, in the men's yeah. game. I mean, if, if if he's kind of if he's trying to dress it up as you know, if the men could only you know lift the veil and let us inside, wouldn't the broadcast be so much better? And you're like. God, if the men were doing this, you'd be absolutely insufferable talking about how <laughs> Michael Carrick takes his coffees. As Roy Hodgson mentioned to me only yesterday, as we, you know, Ada recalled. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, he he, uh, he said some strange things. As we shared a local de- delicacy for dessert uh, <laughs> yesterday evening. Myself Hodgson and Roy Hodgson like, over yeah. a beet salad. Uh, he, tol- <laughs> he told me that if England score the first goal, we've got a great chance. But if Japan <laughs> score first, then it could be very difficult for us. Japan playing keep ball will just try to keep the ball away from us, mm. and it could be very frustrating. Of course, in the end, and I thought, or you know, maybe Japan could score the first goal and you might win. Still, you know, it could happen. <laughs> Japan scored the first goal. England then equalised uh, both penalty kicks, so everybody had a penalty um, in the uh, semi-finals, and only Germany missed theirs. But um, 
you could see that, I mean, Japan were trying to, again, play... Japan are playing a very technical game. Uh, a lot of passing and not a lot of... Uh, you know, they look like Barcelona on a bad day, you know, where, they, where they're not really... where they're kind of passing the ball around, but nobody is really making a run through or getting... You know, there's no, they're not creating any chances. Um, England, on the other hand, were kind of shooting on sight. They uh, were actually happy to kind of have a crack if it looked like a vaguely promising position, hit the crossbar from one of those shots, hit another one just over. Um, and overall, I'd say it probably came closer to scoring. But then, just as everybody was getting ready for extra time, and extra time seems to have been on the cards for a long time, and it was going to be one of these World Cup semifinals, you know, all taking it all the way. You've, I mean, you, you've seen what happened. I'm sure you've seen what happened by now. But a goal comes across, a ball comes across the last minute of injury time. I think it's, it's maybe the end of the second minute of three minutes of injury time. The England defender Laura Bassett, ball coming across uh, her, maybe should go for the left foot. Maybe should swing the left foot at it. Swings the right foot at it. Ball bounces off her foot from the edge of the box, soars um, unerringly into the very top corner of England's net. Hits the crossbar, bounces down over the line and out. You can see that it's over the line. It's cleared away. She's on the ground, staring. She's in a prone position, staring. And you can see this image is now already kind of a famous image of her staring. And did that go over the line? Uh, yes, in fact, it did. It's honestly one of the worst things I've ever seen in a game. It's really, it's one of the, it's one of the cruelest things I've ever seen in a it game football. It was unspeakably cruel. The last minute of a World Cup semi-final to score an own goal like that, just when everybody had been... Oh, my God. Jesus. Uh, so you, And the camera was kind of dwelling. You know, they had the, you know, the wire camera that's sort of hovering over the pitch was yep. looking straight down on her. Uh, she's lying there at the end. And then, you know, kind of really zeroing in on the, on the misery. And, I mean, I'm talking extreme misery here. Um... It was it was unbelievable, and almost almost as you know from from her point of view now. Obviously, everybody was was hugely sympathetic. Um, the coach immediately afterwards, uh, you know, she didn't deserve Laura Bassett's name is on that score sheet, uh, you know, but she didn't deserve it. Um, you know, everybody kind of saying, uh, "This is your hero, Laura. Uh, it w- or it won't define you." Landon Donovan, for instance. Absolutely devastated for at Laura Bassett Six. We all make mistakes. I hope she doesn't let this define her. I'm not sure it's necessarily within Laura Bassett's control. That, you know, the idea that she's going to let this define her may not necessarily be, you know, in her hands. Her her decision to make. I mean, that's just the nature of the game. Is that if that if something like that happens to you in the last minute of a World Cup semi-final, that is the thing that people are going to remember. Um, Hideously cruel as it is. Um, the Japanese, uh, obviously, into the final, so it's a repeat of the last World Cup uh, final. Uh, it's interesting to see the kind of viewing figures this has been getting in the United States. Um, uh, on the BBC last night, it was 2.4 million, which is a big audience for an event that's on. That's, after midnight, that, that is very midnight. big, yeah. Um, uh, in the United States, the uh, game, the semi final, was watched by 8.4 million people. Um, uh, the website SB Nation saying that it was a bit their biggest day for uh, soccer traffic or a bigger day for traffic on their soccer site than any day during the 2014 World Cup. So 
that maybe gives an indication of uh, how excited Americans get about a sport when it looks as though they have a team that's going to win the <laughs> World Global yeah. Championship. But yeah, I mean, it was a, it was pretty amazing. Uh, it was a pretty amazing occasion. Uh, honestly, the worst way to lose I think that I've ever seen uh, from any team. But uh, the final is going to be this weekend: United States against Japan, as I said. Uh, so we'll, uh, I'm sure, be talking about that on Monday. Um, Sepp Blatter, meanwhile. Sepp Blatter has done an interview. He's, I think there's probably going to be more interviews from Sepp Blatter because I think he's probably a little bit annoyed about how things have gone for him over the last uh, month or so. He probably, now that his position at FIFA is, you know, ticking away um, to resignation, he probably will want to get a few things off his chest. Hmm. Even the way you see Bertie Ahern now. Yeah. Now that he's um, no longer in power. Suddenly seems to be a little bit more... Uh, prepared to say certain acid things <laughs> than, you know, previous, previously, I remember it was always very difficult to concentrate on anything Bertie Hearn was saying. Mm. He would just, he would just emit this cloud of verbiage and it was, it was like, it was just designed as though it was like, I always remember thinking it was like a, you know, like a cuttlefish squirting out ink mm. You to try and, you know, squirt away under the, uh, under the cloud of ink, it, he would generate this cloud of really boring words. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't be quite sure how they all fit together. He would leave the conjunctions deliberately vague. You know what I mean? And uh, and you couldn't really be sure what he was saying, and you didn't want to listen to it anyway. You found yourself, despite yourself, drifting off, thinking mm-hmm. about your own stuff. And then he'd finish talking, and you were kind of thinking, what did he just say? And then you're thinking, should be my citizenship. You know, I should be trying to pay attention here. But you're thinking, I, I wasn't, so I can't read. Life, life is short, you know. Um, now, however, you can really hear what he's saying. You know, it's it's very uh, sh- to the point and cutting. And I wonder if Bladder's maybe going to go a little bit that way uh, now that he's out. I mean, at the moment, he still seems to, he's still sounding a little bit um, self-pitying. Well, he's denying, obviously, his, um, uh, his, you know, if somebody accuses me of being corrupt, I ask him whether he knows the meaning of that word. Whoever calls me corrupt will have to prove it, but nobody can prove that because I am not corrupt. I have a clean conscience. Um, he says, if anybody calls me corrupt because FIFA is corrupt, I can only shake my head. Everybody who says something like that should go to jail. <laughs> uh, Bladder is not attending the Women's World Cup final for personal reasons. He usually goes to these World Cup finals, but for some reason he's unwilling to uh, he, he can't make it to the North American continent this week uh, he is however taking comfort in his faith uh, his faith in this sense like I guess being the Catholic faith my faith has given me strength during the during the last week I am a religious person and pray too I own a golden cross that has been blessed by Pope Francis I believe I will go to heaven one day but I believe there is no hell I disagree with the Pope on that so <laughs> Um, why, uh, why? Why would he mention the fact that he's got a golden, golden cross. cross? He should have actually put, you know, sort of in brackets the network, the the dollar value of that. Yeah, it's a, it's a golden Hermes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, he he. Um, yeah, I, I mean a simple a simple wooden. I worship daily cross. in front of this uh, <laughs> trinket. <laughs> um, so there you go. Uh, meanwhile, the the United States has has requested the extradition of those seven uh, FIFA officials who were arrested at the end of May. So uh, we'll see uh, what's going to happen there. Uh, since we were speaking last, Nigel Pearson has been sacked by Leicester for uh, differences in perspective with the owners. Now, this is obviously no surprise whatsoever. Um, despite the fact that Pearson had the uh, had an incredible run of form, Pearson's team 
had an incredible run of form in the last couple of months of the season and uh, from a position where they look nailed on to be relegated have managed to finish in mid-table, um, which is a, an amazing achievement. The kind of achievement that means he should be able to get another job quite quickly were it not for the reasons why he's lost this job. Mm. And the reasons why he's lost the job, although uh, the statement of the Leicester owners uh, is not uh, hugely enlightening, I think are pretty obvious. I mean, it's it's a question of what we... we I mean, we, we were talking about it during the season. Um, the way that Nigel Pearson was behaving um, during the season, when he had these numerous... He, he had various run-ins. He had the, the one with the... Was it McCarthy? Uh, MacArthur, the football, the player, he, he he was kind of choking on the side. And, you know, that, you know, he had he had then a couple of um, bizarre press conferences. He had the one where he called a journalist a prick. Uh, he had another one where he, you know, there was there was a there was a couple of um, angry exchanges and so on, where it looked as though he was a man who was at times struggling to control um, a kind of deep rooted contempt towards the world. Uh, kind of a sense, uh, you know, a sort of simmering anger. His Achilles heel was his Nigel Pearson-like behaviour. Well, you know, he... It's he, just Pearson being Pearson, unfortunately. That that was kind of the... You know, it wasn't like... That's, you know, that's uncharacteristic of Nigel. You know, he's not that kind of guy. Yeah. Everything about what all of those flashpoints that you talk about there, it wasn't kind of someone... You know, it it wasn't someone clearly acting out of character. That was Nigel Pearson's character. And all of the other uh, uh, slightly better-mannered interactions throughout the season were him toning down his natural Pearson-ness. Yeah, I mean, he you know he managed to because he realized it was it was it was it was creating problems. But he always seems as though he's straining at the very limits of his patience. Mm. That almost everything that was said to him was so stupid. That it was, it took a monumental effort of will just to swallow the anger and give something like a normal answer. Although there was, there would always be a, a tinge of sarcasm. Uh, another view of this is um, the the one advanced by, among others, Richard Keyes. I mean, lots of people in in football have said, "Oh, this is unbelievable." You know, looking at the achievement, the the achievement of that amazing run that saves Leicester from relegation, and saying, "How can they sack a manager who's presided over such a run?" Mm. It's insane. Football, the game's gone. You know what I mean? The game's gone. Um, Richard Keyes, for instance, uh, talks about... Uh, I hear people say Pearson's a complicated character. No, he's not. He's same. He got himself in trouble time and time again last season. It's the same reason every time. A loyalty to his players. It wasn't a loyalty to his players. It was an inability to manage... or To, to not lose his temper in irritating situations. Yeah. Now, the, the problem that he was always going to have was that at some point, that conversation would be not with a journalist who he can get away with calling a prick, but with his boss, right? And if if this is something that which, you know, if the, it's not, there's never, the boss is probably going to be asking even dumber questions than the journalist from mm. Pearson's own point of view. He knows even less about what's really going on at the club or what's you know what's really happening? What what his what the job really entails is in charge of a team. Going into a performance review like that with a boss is gonna is always gonna be really annoying, right? Always really annoying. And if Pearson was unable to keep a lid on it, you know, keep a lid on it in, in, compar- in comparatively innocuous situations, you could see how this was always going to end in mm. 
in trouble. You know, a difference of perspective is how the owners describe it. I'm sure there was. I'd love to have seen. I, I only wish there was a recording yeah. of well, the see, meeting. Contempt is a weird thing. You know, contempt doesn't, doesn't suggest that you don't care at all about what the other person is saying. It's like you care a little bit and you're a little offended by what's being said. To truly not care is that's where you want to be. Yeah. You know, like we, 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 and I'm sure there are many managers who can go into a press conference and literally say anything or anything and nothing. Like that's real. That's the, that's the, that's the Zen sort of position that you need to find if you're a manager where you can be asked anything and it actually doesn't matter. These people who say, I don't care what you say, yeah. they obviously care a little bit because you're engaging. I don't read the papers. Yeah. Like. <laughs> Well, you know, that, that's a big, ma- a huge, big flashing warning sign to me that this person does care a little too much about yeah. uh, about what things. Are. I mean, most people do. Most people, m- most people can't help caring what's said about them, and it takes uh, either. You, I think you have to have you have to have a certain kind of aristocratic mentality, which maybe not a lot of people have. Giovanni Trapattoni always struck me as somebody who had this type of outlook. Yeah. You know, I am. It, for me to care about a single thing you said would put me on the same level as you, a little scribbling you type. Well, yeah. You know, <laughs> where you're actually like one of those things I see when if I lift up a rock in my garden. I, I mean, I don't hate you. Yeah. I know Trap that was excellent at it, actually. That's, you, that's exactly what I'm talking about here. You, have, you have your role in the ecosystem. The same as those, those lice I see uh, scrabbling around under a rock that I've just picked up. I mean, I know they're doing valuable work, aerating the soil or, or de- you know, causing stuff to decompose. Wow. Whatever it is they yeah. do, I don't mind. You know, but it's not as though I'm, I'm really thinking about them once I, once I put the rock back down again. You know, they, they get on with their business, I get on with mine. Um, most people can't do that. Uh, most people <laughs> find it natural to get especially annoyed if, if someone's having a go. Uh, and if someone is asking stupid questions about it, uh, you know, questions which seem to be stupid about something they know a lot better than them. Louis van Gaal, for instance, he can't quite help himself mm. when people ask him what he th- thinks to be stupid questions. But, you know, um, I think with Pearson, he's, he's got it to an unusual degree. So I hope he does get a job because I honestly don't think he's a bad guy. But I think it's always going to be difficult for someone like that to... Um, Surrounded by idiots as he's always going to be, <laughs> to to hold his tongue, to you know, long enough to to keep a job for a long time. But Neil Lennon is is, is being talked about as a contender there. Obviously, Lennon had a great career as a player at Leicester. Uh, uh, maybe um, they will approach Bolton to hire him. We'll wait and see. Um, a couple of things have been happening uh, since on later on Monday. Actually, since we were last talking, Arsenal confirmed the signing of Petr Cech, uh, a brilliant signing for Arsenal. Who's in fairness, who's goalkeeper Ospina has been playing really well, or had been playing uh, pretty well in the Copa America, made an amazing save from... Yeah, double save, yeah. Know, Messi, yeah. Messi and Aguero. Uh, had, a, had a great game. Um, but I guess either him or, or Chesney is going to be on the way out now, because Petr Cech is, I assume, going to be the number one. I mean, he's explained he doesn't want... They must have told him he's number one, because... Um, and he should be the number one, because he's, you know, a brilliant goalkeeper. Um, the unusual thing here is that Jose Mourinho has allowed a valuable player to join a, a rival club. Whether he considers Arsenal really to be a rival, I'm not sure. Although I'd say he probably does, because Arsenal have got a very strong squad now. Uh, finished the season really well. I mean, if not them, then who? If, if not them. I mean, to me, at the moment, they look like the team best equipped to actually um, challenge Chelsea for that title. We haven't really seen who Manchester City are going to bring in yet. But Mourinho has talked about this. Uh, he says, I support the owner's decision to honour the player in this way. 
uh, to honour the player in this way. That is letting Czech join Arsenal, um, thereby allowing him to stay in the city he's been living for a long time, to play for another big team in the Premier League, to compete against Chelsea for the Premier League title, as opposed to sending him away to some prison colony club, you know, or burying him somewhere where he can't come back to do Chelsea any, any, any damage. You know, Fenerbahce or somewhere like this, you know, yeah. what about some, what about, how, do you fancy, how do you fancy the boss for us? Um, but because uh, Mourinho was putting it in such terms that because he was such a great servant, because he was so uh, loyal to this club, because he served us so well, we honor him by letting, by letting him, you know, exercise his rights as a human being. <laughs> we honor him uh, by that. We've him. decided not to royally screw him over. Sometimes you have to respect the wishes of someone who's earned so much respect with his service and actions for your club. It is very rare in football to make a decision like this, says Mourinho. And for that reason, I'm proud of my club for making it. So he's disassociating himself from the decision as well. Think, actually reading between the lines there, it's pretty clear he would not have made this decision. Mm. He would have held out for the, for the offer from Turkey uh, or Russia or China or wherever. Mm. But Arsenal is not the place he would have They're doing to great go. things in Dubai, Peter. <laughs> it's a, it's, they say it's the future, the coming, <laughs> the, you know, the city by the sea, the shining city by the sea. Um, the signing of Falcao has also been confirmed. Uh, you know, he's saying this was... I, I, it reminded me, again, of this book that I keep going back to, um, the special one uh, by um, Diego Torres, and something which he describes happening at Real Madrid. Oh, we talked about uh, his uh, the Almeida, is it? Yeah. Yeah, we talked about it when uh, the story was first made a couple of weeks ago. It is absolutely absurd. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. I mean, um, the, the relevant paragraph in that, I mean, this is essentially, we need a centre forward. Hugo Almeida, uh, you know, 6-3, six, six dominant in the air. Mm. <laughs> He's got Not Real Madrid the, written, all over, written all over him this time. Not life. the prettiest striker at the eye. Uh, but he jo- will run the channel. He is a Pedro uh, Pedro Mendes, George Mendes. Pedro Mendes, a different uh, Portuguese football man. Um, uh, Almeida had an uh, after averaging thirteen goals a season in four years at Werder Bremen, he had a worse record than Iguain and Benzema. But Almeida had an added feature that made him particularly attractive. He was the most important number nine on Gesture Future books. Uh, That's uh, the agency of George Mendes. Um, the relevant paragraph is this one. There were people at Gestafuch who, upon learning of Mourinho's desire to push Madrid into signing Almeida, tried to persuade Mendes against it so as not to lose credibility with Perez. They argued that the president might end up thinking Mourinho was more interested in doing business than building a competitive team. In the opinion of these experts, the most prudent business plan would consist of three stages. First, signing excellent players. Second, winning major titles. Third, with the endorsement of those uh, trophies, buying ordinary and perhaps even overrated players. <laughs> Mourinho broke with this plan of progressive action. He was so sure of his power that he tried to advance the third base in the first attack. It goes on like that. This is what he says. Uh, was happening in Obviously, Real Madrid did not sign Hugo Almeida. They didn't think that he was the, you know, interesting idea, but not going to go with it this time. Uh, so they didn't go with it. Um, but on this occasion, the most important number nine on the books of Justice has been signed by Chelsea. One of the stories that uh, Liverpool apparently signing Benteke, or this is the rumour which is going about today. I mean, that's been talked about that for a while. So maybe we'll talk about that next week. They have, for the second summer in a row, put together almost a completely new team from scratch. Uh, so maybe this time we'll work out better than last time. In the final on it again. And the A. Oh, what about that? Send him off! Send the drink again! 
sent off. He's going to be a yellow card. A car speed. Oh, what about that? Send him off. Send him off. Send him off. You'll ball this game, Campbell. A car speed. We're joined now by Jonathan Wilson, who's in Santiago. And Jonathan, the final of the Copa Americas this weekend, Chile are in it. They've never won it before. Uh, can you give us a sense of uh, what the atmosphere has been like in the country over the uh, three weeks of this tournament as, as the team has done so well and got all the way to the end? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's huge for the whole country. And I think you sort of saw that almost in the second semi-final, the one Chile weren't playing in, the fact there were so many Chileans there all chanting Chile, all, all chanting Chile songs. Um, the, the people in Concepcion seem to want, want to, uh, to be a part of that. They'd, they'd seen what was going on in Santiago and that's, you know, as you know, as a stadium that has a fantastic atmosphere. It's just a huge uh, single uh, bowl. So when Chile play, the whole thing is red, and you get a tiny pocket of, of the away support. And then, of course, the, the, the small pocket that they leave empty is a uh, memorial to the to people who died in the finish head in, in that stadium. Um, and it was seemed to be a, you know, a, a, a clear attempt to replicate the atmosphere in, in the game of Concepcion, the, the Argentina-Paraguay game. Um, so it is huge. I mean, the, the, the papers are completely full of it. You know, the the, the, the front pages are all about the, the copper, even though Chile's going through quite a difficult time with um, educational reform. There's hundreds of thousands of people being on the street protesting about the, the lack of free university education. Um, and, and, you know, there's you know, regularly demonstrations being uh, cleared by, by water cannons and things by police. So, yeah, it, it, it's, it's all consuming at the moment. And I think it's actually quite interesting what's going to happen when the tournament's over, um, when you have the sort of the, the come down, whether they've won or lost, and then suddenly all the focus is going to be back on these demonstrations, and um, and and that 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 I think might be quite jarring for them. What is um, a, a big sort of uh, outbreak of, I guess nationalism is the word, look like in a country which until um, quite recently, 1990, was a military dictatorship? I mean, is that? Uh, I, I'm thinking here of say 2006 in Germany when when this was sort of the first time everyone had been waving their flags in the streets since the 1930s and it was seen as quite a big deal. Uh, is, is there kind of a taboo about the kind of extreme nationalism in, in Chile these days or is everyone just kind of cool with it? Uh, I mean, I think that those are different cases in that uh, Chile's violence was directed upon itself rather than on an external enemy. So I don't think there's any, any shame in being Chilean in, in, in this way there was perhaps shame in being German in the late 40s and, and, and thereafter. Um I mean, what is noticeable is that everybody wears the shirt. You know, it's it's the stadium is completely red. 
Um, but it, it's sort of, I mean, it's, it's reasonably lighthearted. You know, there's, there's a lot of um, a lot of people wear masks of Gary Medell or, or Alexis Sanchez or, or Arturo Vidal. They're, you know, they're sort of the big three. A couple of Claudio Bravos, but but mainly those, those three. Um, but the songs are in some ways quite limited. There's only, there's only seen enough, two or three of them. There, there was some um, uh, some, some anti-Argentinian chanting at the at the Argentina semi-final the other night. There were. Um, I, I can't remember the exact words, but it's something along the lines of "You only lost the Malvinas because you're so stupid." Um, so, I mean, and Chile, of course, supported Britain in that in that war largely because they 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 knew that they could have been Ireland in the Beagle Channel, and Britain had pledged to support them over that should it happen. Um, but I mean, even that was reasonably lighthearted. There was some jeering of the anthem, but by the end, the Chilean fans were were applauding Lionel Messi. You know, they they were sort of as as awed by that performance as anybody else. So. It, it's not sort of um, it's not an unpleasant nationalism. It, I think it's more patriotism than sort of a real jingoism. Uh, having said that, what has been noticeable is that Plaza Italia, which is sort of the the big gathering point in in, in the centre of town, um, after the game against Uruguay, the quarterfinal, I went up there just to you know see what was going on and have a drink. We got there in the taxi. It's probably I, I would guess an hour and a half, two hours after the game had finished. You could smell tear gas in the air. You got to Plastitalia, the whole thing was, was soaking wet. They obviously used water cannons. And I, from what I can gather, there seems to be some kind of unofficial curfew that around about midnight the police come along and say, right, you've had your fun, now, now clear off. As if they don't don't want these big gatherings, which I guess given what we've seen in the demonstrations in, in the, the two or three days before the tournament and a couple of times during it, uh, the educational protests and the violence that they've descended into largely i think police driven to be honest but um you can sort of understand why they don't want huge congregations of people it's it seems that um among the people anyway there's a certain pragmatism uh when the national interest is involved i mean just as you can't break an omelet without uh, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs you can't maybe win a Copa america without crashing your ferrari drunk on the way home (laughs) from a casino um, nobody has any issues with Arturo Vidal. He's a national hero, regardless of his, uh, you know, alleged criminality. Um, no, actually, I think there's quite a lot of discomfort about that. Um, that I mean, Jorge Sampaoli, the, the coach, he was sort of saying, "Oh, we can't get that this out of proportion. This isn't a serious offence." Which I mean, it looked like quite a serious crash in, in the pictures. It is a serious offence if, yeah. if if the allegations are true that he was driving a Ferrari at 150 kilometres an hour while drunk. Um, and but I, I, I don't know. I, I guess you don't be too sentimentalist about that because I can't imagine any other country in the world acting any differently. That you say, you know, we let this take its course through the courts, and, and, and then we make a decision. Um, but when you when you talk to to people in the street, when you talk to taxi drivers or waiters or you know just just other fans you bump into, there were quite a, quite a large, surprising large number for me who were saying, no, we we don't think you should get away with this. Seems to be a feeling in Chile that if you're rich enough and famous enough, you can get away with pretty much anything, uh, and that's a line that's been been repeated by a few people. So I, I, mean, I guess that's referring to some kind of political scandal. I'm not entirely clear on, um, but equally, there's a lot of people saying, "Well, you know, he hasn't actually been convicted of anything." And I think that is a slight problem. I mean, the, the Chilean TV seems to have decided very clearly what's happened. There's been reconstructions of it, which, if reconstructions are true, then he was driving like an absolute idiot and deserves, you know. Clearly deserves a jail sentence. Um, I suspect that won't happen. Um, but you know, I, I guess the argument that it's still going through the courts is, is a valid one. Yeah, I, I just wondered what you made of his actual performances in the tournament. I must say, I'm not that impressed with him, really. 
Um, and having seen him also in the Champions League final, I wonder if he's one of these guys who, he obviously has a very striking appearance. Um, uh, you know, he's got a certain kind of tough guy uh, style and does a lot, engages in a lot of posturing. And I wonder if he's really um, as good a footballer underneath all that as people would like to think, because it, it seems to me he, he could have even been sent off um, in the semi-final very early on for you know pushing an opponent in the face, yeah, stupid sort of behaviour. Same kind of thing he did, uh, you know, playing playing for Juventus against Barcelona. He could easily have been sent off in the in the first half. I, I kind of wonder. I'm not. I'm not really convinced that he's as, as great a player as he's sometimes made out to be. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's a sense that he hasn't quite come back from his knee injury, the play he was beforehand. So, I mean, I, I think actually his, his, his tournament, I thought, thought the first two games, he was excellent. He, you know, he looked Chile's most dangerous player. Um, I mean, he won a penalty in both of those games. The first one slightly fortuitously and then converted it. He scored up ahead of in the second game. He set up the Vargas goal in the second game. Then since the crash, his, his form seems to have dipped. Now, I don't know if that's coincidence or, or, or not, but... Uh, and, and you're quite right. He, he could easily have been sent off for, for raising his hand to Zambrano in, in, in that uh, in that semi-final. Uh, nobody really uh, outside of Chile, I guess, is giving him much of a chance because of the way that Lionel Messi is playing and the last two performances have just been amazing. I mean, his form taken over the last six months as a whole, say so it's not maybe quite the most prolific of his career. And obviously, there's this uh, strange goal drought uh, for Argentina at the moment. But do you think it is the best? I can't. Honestly, remember seeing him so dominant in so many games, give performances of such quality, so many nutmegs. I don't know if that's the, necessarily the, you know, the defining measure, but I can't remember ever seeing him play better than he has over the last six months. Yeah, I think that's probably fair, and I think if, if Messi plays, yeah, plays well, how, how on earth do you stop him? You know, it's and that's that's a problem Chile have got. I think the other problem they got for the final is that um, Argentina are just much bigger than them. And that was a problem they had against Uruguay in the days before that quarterfinal. Sampaoli, he, he put up a tape about two metres above the ground and he was making his players, his defenders, practice winning headers above the line of that tape. Uh, and I, I think you know, that, that's really the problem for them on Saturday, that even if they find a way of stopping Messi, which I suspect they won't be able to, but even if they did find a way of doing that, Argentina can have got them at set pieces that... Argentina have won a high proportion of aerial duels than anybody else in the tournament. Chile have got, I think, got the third worst record because they're short. The average height is one meter seventy-six, which is the shortest in the tournament. Uh, Gary Medel, one meter seventy-two, is one of the two centre backs. Um, the other centre back, Rojas, who's come in for Howard, doesn't, doesn't didn't look as comfortable in the semi-final as, as Howard had before that. So I, I think, although Chile have, have played well through the tournament, I think you'd say that. Up until the semi-finals, they they'd been the best team, they'd been the most fluid team. Jorge Valdivia, uh, had, you know, who, who I think is a is a great player, but a really frustrating player. You know, never quite seems to find consistency. And I think the fact he, he's gone off to play for Alwada in in Abu Dhabi is is significant. But he's had a great tournament, knitting things together. And you sort of could have imagined them beating the Argentine at the group stage. That you know, they had a fluency that Argentina lacked, but, but those last two games, I think Argentina have, have looked absolutely magnificent. And the frustration, I guess, is that they couldn't produce that at the World Cup. Yeah. Although they sort of ground their way through to the final, they never really produced the sort of flowing football like, that they produced against Paraguay or, or even against Colombia, although they didn't, didn't score against Colombia. No, and I, I wondered, I mean, I'm sure you've, you've been speaking to a few of the Argentine journalists over there, um, what their theories are as to... Um, how Lionel Messi, twelve months on, is so much better than the than the kind of uh, dejected figure who finished the World Cup. Uh, any theories on what happened there? 
Well, I think there's a general sense he, he's fitter now for whatever reason. Um, and this, these trips to the Italian nutritionist seem to be working. And, you know, he looks thinner in, in his face. Um, so, so maybe. So, I mean, you know, really, players do come in and out of form. And, and maybe they were just unlucky that the World Cup they designated as being Messi's World Cup, you know, the one that was when he was at his peak, the other members of that team on the 2005 and the 20 World Cup were at their peak. That they they had key injuries to to Aguero. Higuain wasn't fully fit. Di Maria ended up getting injured, and Messi is probably in the worst form he's been in for five years. Um, I, th- I mean, when when this comparison between Messi and Maradona, which has constantly been made, when you make that, you increasingly think how lucky Argentina were that Maradona had spells of form during two World Cups. Because Messi really has been a far, far more consistent player over a far longer period. It's just that his good form hasn't happened to to, to hit the World Cups in the way that Maradona's did. Do you think they're gonna? He's finally going to win a senior international tournament uh, this weekend. Yeah, I do. Okay, well, Jonathan, enjoy the final. Cheers, thanks very much. So, if Lionel Messi wins the Copa America, does that finally uh, put him ahead of Diego Maradona in your view? Uh, well, this reminds me of. Uh, Tiger Woods getting asked about his uh, Ryder Cup record, and uh, he, after a while, after like maybe ten minutes of people telling him how he hadn't really done it in the Ryder Cup, he goes, "Okay, guys, tell me how many majors Jack Nicklaus won." And everyone in the room says, uh, "Eighteen." And he says, "Okay, can you tell me Jack Nicklaus's record in the Ryder Cup?" And everyone just kind of stares at each other and goes, <coughs> and "He goes, yeah, okay," and walks out. And to be honest, I kind of get the impression impression that you know. A Copa America isn't really going to cut it for Lionel Messi. Yeah. If you're talking about, right, okay, he's the best player of all time. And, this, and you know, I, don't, I think this is getting less and less of an issue because he I think it's pretty obvious so that he is. Yeah, he pretty obviously is the best player of all time. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the idea was out there last summer that, oh, you know, he has to win a World Cup to cement his legacy. I don't think that winning a Copa America cements his legacy increases. Maybe it increases a little bit in Argentina, but globally I don't think it has... Do you? No, I don't. I don't I mean, think it, it makes. It doesn't make that. Uh, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. It's just not. I don't think the Copa is really making that much of an impact outside of outside of South America. I mean, it's obviously nothing like the World Cup. Really, it needs to happen in the World Cup, but it could still happen for Messi. I mean, he looks fit as a fiddle. To uh, be honest, I can imagine him still uh, being uh, the best player in the world when the Russian World Cup happens. Um, so it's not too late for him to. Uh, do that, but the idea that he has to do it to be, you know, the best, I don't really think is relevant anymore. He so clearly is now. No, but nobody else has ever done anything like what he's done um, in club football. So it doesn't really matter whether he wins. Although if he did, it would be in a nice way of ending the argument. But we've got to move on uh, because Mikael Jungsma of uh, the correspondent in Holland is on the line to talk to us a little bit about the Dutch national team who. Uh, have changed their coach. Gus Hiddink was the manager of the national team until a couple of days ago, but he is gone now, and Danny Blind has replaced him. Uh, Mikhail, can you tell us, did he um, quit, or was he fired? Um, well, um, it seems like there there was a mutual agreement uh, to, to quit the job, but in the end, his, his position basically became untenable. But I, I do think he, he actually made the decision by himself. Um, he, I, I don't think he actually fancy doing the job anymore. 
Uh, well, why not? I mean, this is a guy who's had outstanding success in that job. He's had uh, outstanding success in a number of international uh, jobs, although not, not so much maybe since 2008. Um, I would have thought this job was right up his street. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the whole point. Um, his, his last real success as a manager was probably 2009 when he uh, took over at Chelsea for a, for a brief period. But uh, ever since, I mean, it's not everything's not been failure, but he failed to qualify with the Russians for the World Cup, uh, for the Euros with, with the Turkey side uh, and so on. So, I mean, he, it's not been a, a great time for him over the last five, six years. And um, the the outlook of this job was way different when he was uh, appointed manager. Um, even then, there was uh, there was quite some um, well some upset about him getting the job and Ronald Koeman, who was was the dream candidate of, of the country. Uh, but Kuzinik was announced in March uh, 2014, uh, just after the loss to France, uh, the Dutch loss to nil. Um, Van Gaal didn't look that good as a manager either. So he, he was really gearing up for a great gig because there was a good chance the Dutch would uh, drop out in the first round of the World Cup. Uh, he would have the chance to take over in his manner. But, well, we all know how the World Cup went. So instead of being um, being eased into the job, the expectations were uh, instantly just sky high. Yeah, well, at the same time, if you've got a team that's been good enough to finish third in the world, you can't then be third in your group behind Iceland uh, and the Czech Republic um, at more than halfway through World Cup qualifying. I was interested, though, that you mentioned that Ronald Koeman was the dream candidate. Um, in what world is he anybody's dream candidate? This is, this is not a guy who's had a, an outstanding career in management, surely? Uh, no, but he's uh, had um, at that point he was uh, already uh, 12 years in as a manager. He's had uh, several title wins, uh, has been at a lot of big clubs, uh, known to uh, to be able to um, uh, turn things around in, in cup ties and stuff like that. He's a good good tactician as well. Um, so I think that was the main reason that, that he's that he was the main candidate. And for um, I mean, there is a certain drought of top managers in the Netherlands at the moment in terms of um, Van Gaal being one, obviously, but even him, his uh, appointment back then was slightly controversial. Uh, all the other guys that used to be top managers like like Anat Velkat or, uh, or Ahed and Karol, well, in their, their 60s. And one of the other uh, big names like Frank Rijkaard, for instance, hasn't done anything for years. So there was not really one candidate that would be... Um, that would be outstanding, but he he was definitely the one uh, that the crowd really took to. Well, is there a bit of insecurity in Holland about that, that, you, that your well might be running dry a little bit now after kind of assuming that there was always going to be great Dutch coaches just as there was always the great Dutch footballers? Actually, at the moment, there just really aren't any. Yeah, I, I think there there's this, there is a concern because, I mean, um, there was a big poll in the, the, the Dutch newspaper, the Telegraaf, uh, with over 40,000 votes and uh, almost 80% voted for hitting uh, out. Basically, they were happy uh, to get rid of him, but to actually f- find out who you want uh, as your next manager is very difficult. And now it's Danny Blind, obviously. But yeah, there, there's a drought in that aspect. There's also a drought in, in terms of players in that uh, in that 
crucial age group from 25 till 29. We basically have, have none uh, that are actually of top level. So, um, yeah, it, it's all just waiting for young managers like Van de Boer, uh, Philippe Cocu, uh, some others. Van Bronckhorst now starts at Feyenoord as well to come through. And the same goes for the players with, with Memphis Depay, an obvious name. Uh, and... Yeah, it's, it's it's a bit of a strange period for the Dutch national team and for, for the Dutch competition in that aspect as well. Hmm. I, I see there's some quotes from Danny Blind. So Danny Blind has got the job now. I'm not quite sure why he gets the job, given that he's been the assistant of hitting and it doesn't seem to have worked out. But anyway, Danny Blind has got the job. Um, he's revealed us that, oh, I could have joined Manchester United. I had an amazing offer. They made me an amazing offer. Van Hal wanted me badly. But if you have ambition... What is more beautiful than becoming manager of your country? These are the uh, English translations of the quotes in Algamain Dagblad. Now, Danny Blind is 52, if I'm not mistaken. Um, if he had ambition, why was he working as Gus Hiddings' assistant? Um, well, there, at that point, uh, when Gus Hiddings was, uh, was appointed, there was the idea of, of doing what the Germans did as well, just bring in an assistant that, that you kind of groom to become the, the Dutch national manager. And uh, Kuman was actually asked for that role, but he felt he was too big of a manager to to take up on uh, take up that role. So, uh, and Danny Blind thought, well, I don't have much much to, to bring as a manager yet, but this is just one hell of an opportunity. So he just decided to jump into that that, that vacuum that uh, that existed, and he, he he took well full advantage, you could say, because he's now um, appointed till the World Cup 2018. But um, well, that, I mean that's that's amazing. Have they have they given him a contract that long? Because this is a guy who uh, was has only really managed Ajax, as far as I know, and he was a failure when he managed Ajax, and that was nearly ten years ago. So why why how come he gets the big job? Well, I mean that's a good question. I mean he's worked with with three three of the biggest managers uh, the Dutch team uh, or the, or the Dutch have known in, in Van Gaal, Cruyff, and and Hiddink. Um You you could. Think he has learned a lot in those roles. He's he's been a competent assistant from from what I can tell. But um, as as a head coach at Ajax, he, he wasn't doing great to, to say the least. He had the lowest amount of uh, points in uh, in the last sixteen years for for an Ajax team. So so kind of tells you that it wasn't great. But um, yeah, that for some reason he's always been able to to uh, get in the right place to to have the right contacts and. In, in that sense, he, he's kind of a survivor within an organization. He's really capable of that. And with this one as well, I mean, the, the Dutch FA searched for a person that would be, uh, well, would be humble enough to assist for two years, uh, but on the other hand, would be, would be eager enough to then take over the job. And to fit that profile, I mean, the, the candidates you would like to have wouldn't wouldn't sell for a for an assistant role, and um, the assistants that would sell for that, yeah, some some of them are probably too scared to actually take up uh, what is probably the biggest managerial role in the in the country. So he sounds like a real a kind of political operator. Um, maybe he's good at managing his uh, superiors in the organization. How is he at actually going to be managing the players? I, I think the current the Dutch generation maybe isn't as good as previous ones, although they do have uh, in Memphis Depay at least one outstanding player of whom a lot is expected. Um, and I see that Depay has finally brought his uh, holiday in Los Angeles to a conclusion and has announced to the world that he is now working 
uh, <laughs> focusing on the season, focusing on the season with Manchester United. When he signed for Manchester United, um, a journalist colleague of ours, Simon Cooper, tweeted something interesting about Depay. He said uh, about him, he one brilliant, fast, skilled, and scores two inconsistent, three totally unproven at top level, four weird, spoiled film star type personality. I always wondered what that last part meant. What do you think he's talking about there? Well, I, I think that's uh, that's probably a typical Dutch way of looking at things. When you are a bit bit more eccentric, you often get uh, get that just stuck to you. But I mean, in reality, he's he's been probably the only just super talent the Dutch have uh, had over the last few years. Um, Obviously, not talking about the old guard in, in Robin and Van Persie, but uh, Memphis Depay. There's a lot expected from him. Um, I don't think he's. I mean, he is. He has that superstar um, uh, ability in terms of how he handles his media. He's, he's very savvy in that. But I don't think he's 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 actually spoiled or anything. I I think he's. Um, well. He's, he's like any other 21-year-old kid that's about to become one of the best players in the world, really. Um, he, he's not really been in, in any incidents or accidents with managers or anything. He's, he's been quite humble in that. He's very, very eager to learn. Um, he's been compared to Cristiano Ronaldo, of course, uh, not only because he likes to cut in and shoot with his right foot, but also because he has that same drive to, to just improve himself all of the time. Um, he's, he's been very professional about himself. He's taken really good care of himself as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's all a bit overstated. I think, I mean, when, when you're 21 years old, when you're one of the absolute stars in your league, when, when you're being compared to Cristiano Ronaldo and, and that kind of, that, that, that caliber of player. And I mean, you don't go out partying or, or, you know, pick up, pick up uh, speeding tickets or anything. I mean, I don't think there's there's too much wrong with his attitude in general. Well, that, that all sounds very promising. Uh, Mikael, Mikael Jones uh, of uh, the correspondent in uh, Holland. Thanks a million for joining us today. Cheers. Have a good one. Yeah, I was just referring there to Memphis Depay's uh, latest um, Instagram. There had an amazing holiday. Now focus and off to Manchester. And he's got a, another little uh, Instagram there of him hanging out by what looks like a, a little private jet. He's not flying commercial to L.A., which is where he's in all these. And he's hanging out with uh, guys like Paul Pogba and uh, Romelu Lukaku. Yeah. By the looks of it. So, I mean, that's just when you get to this level of international uh, football um, fame and success. The air is rarefied. Yeah. There's not, you know there's not a lot of guys who can there. handle it. Yeah. yeah. It's, there's not a lot of guys who, can, who, can, uh, who you can actually afford to spend time with. Um, uh, he does appear to have a great, <laughs> a great life. He, he seems to have had an amazing holiday. Anyway, uh, heavily tattooed man. Dr- uh, dream, believe, achieve. That's what I do, and that's his. That's his motto. So, mm. it's looking like it's going to be an exciting season at Old Trafford. But I think that's all from us today for this edition of the Second Captains Irish Times. Irish Times Second Captains podcast. Uh, well played, Ken. Well played. Uh, thanks, Karen. It's been good to have you here. Thank you, Simon. Also, and thank uh, you to all of you out there. For listening. What is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, those, those boys. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.